Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in two locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information about our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Revo Downtown, how are we? Good, excellent, excellent. I'm doing well also. Nobody ever asked the pastor how he's doing. I'm good, in case you were wondering. Um, Let's grab our Bibles and go Job chapter 6. For those of you that do not know who I am, my name is Wesley Johnson. And uh, perhaps unbeknownst to you, uh, I serve as one of your pastors. Uh, It's just I do so about 30 minutes away in a place called Rural Hall, a bustling metropolis of which I'm sure you have heard. Uh, So I've journeyed down to the concrete jungle that is downtown. Um, I brought my horse here, uh, so if you smelled something strange in the parking lot, that's just how we get around in Rural Hall. Anyway... um, (laughs) So I've got the honor of preaching here this morning because Pastor Nathan uh, is with some other gentlemen uh, in Cuba leading a men's conference. And so before we go any further, I'd love to pray over the work that they are doing there. Uh, Lord Jesus, thanks so much that we have a lead pastor that doesn't just tell people to go, uh, doesn't just tell people to sacrifice, doesn't just tell other people what should be done in order to serve Jesus, but rather is, is there uh, living that out before us. And, and so we thank you for him uh, and the team that is with him. We just ask that you might bless their work. We thank you for giving them an incredibly powerful message uh, in the gospel of Jesus. And, and we ask that that might be pro- proclaimed well and clearly uh, and that you might save many as a result of their efforts. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, we're going to continue this morning in the Struggle Bus series, and, and we're going to consider from the book of Job this morning a question that will probably be of at least some interest to you, either experientially or intellectually, one of the two. We're, we're going to ask the question, uh, is God fair? Is God fair? Right, and that's something that probably has come into your mind at one time or another, again, either intellectually or experientially. Now, for some of you, you may not have suffered a tremendous amount personally, and so for you, this may not be incredibly experiential. Like This may not hit you in the gut as we consider God's fairness in, in struggle, in suffering, um, but you've probably at least thought about it, right? Because we all at least know somebody who has walked through something that, based on our estimation, maybe wasn't entirely fair. Like, that's a good person. Why did that happen to them? Like, if, God, if you're so good, how did you let this fall off the rails in that person's life? Like, I know some jerks that could have, maybe you could have done that to them instead, right? And so that, that's probably coming to your brain. Or perhaps you're in here and you have suffered much, in which case that's not an intellectual question for you, nor is it removed from you uh, because it was somebody that was maybe distant from you who you saw suffer, but maybe it was you, in which case this is a more legitimate, gut-wrenching kind of question. Is God fair in our suffering. And so one thing that I've noticed is that in our culture, um, we, we don't have a really robust understanding of fairness. Like in, in 21st century Western civilization, when we say, that's not fair, here's what we normally mean. I don't like that. <laughs> like that, that's, that's how we, that's what we really mean if we're just honest, right? Like, we've conflated fairness with something failing to align with our preferences, and we talk about those two things as if they're the same thing, right? 
I mean, I remember being a, a teenager growing up in my parents' house and being pretty sure that they were pretty much oppressive totalitarians that needed to have their rule overthrown because they were misusing their power, you know? I'm like, I know that I stole some cigarettes and was listening to Nelly rap music on Napster as a 10-year-old, but you didn't need to ground me. Like, that's not fair. Are you serious? Are you going to treat me like that, right? And so we don't, we don't maybe have a great under... You guys remember Napster, right? Okay, I was just making sure I was talking... Okay, just making sure I wasn't the only one that downloaded music illegally. Uh, okay, just making sure. This, can you erase that from the podcast in case there are any police in here? Anyway, so like we, we don't maybe have the best framework for fairness because we're, we're a privileged people. So sometimes we think of fair as, as just, I don't, I don't like that. And we use the terms kind of interchangeably. Um, and, and that, I think, causes us to respond to suffering much the way that Job initially did in chapter 6. He's thrown, his friends get around him and start giving him some advice. And, and I should say, if you're new to this sermon series, if this is your first time, you're like, who's Job? Why are we in the sixth chapter of his book? Why is it pronounced Job instead of Job? I don't know what's going on at all. Uh, I'll just catch you up to speed a little bit. Um, Job is this guy in the Bible who aside from Jesus himself, is sort of the archetype for suffering in Scripture. Um, Very few people have suffered like Job has suffered. Within the first two chapters of the book that bears his name, he lost his health, his wealth, and his family. And now, in the middle of the book, uh, he's trying to come to grips with that. What, what, does this, what does this say about God that these things would happen to me? What does this say about myself that these things would happen to me? And he's just trying to get his arms around everything that has happened. And here is initially how he begins to respond. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 24. He says, Teach me, and I will be silent. Make me understand how I have gone astray. Now, that's obviously Job being, being uh, a little bit frustrated and angsty, saying, hey, teach me, and I'll listen. Help me understand what I did wrong here, because I've lost everything, and to my knowledge, I did not do anything to deserve it. You guys hear that in the text, right? He's saying, as far as I can surmise, I didn't do anything that warranted this. So if you'd like to teach me what I did wrong, I'm, I'm listening, God. Let's look at verse 30 of the same chapter. Job says, is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my palate discern the cause of calamity? Now, this, this here, he gets a little bit less reverent. Did you guys notice that transition from 24 to 30? Like in verse 24, he's like, he's still like a, a pretty good like church going person. You know, he's like, okay, God, like just explain to me what's going on and I'll listen to you. He's being kind of reverent in his questioning of God. A- and now he's straight up sassy. In verse 30, did you see he put on some sassy pants? Does anybody else say that? Like, yeah, my wife says that to my daughter all the time. She'll be like, Well, somebody's got their sassy pants on this morning. I'm like, I'm gonna pull those sassy pants down, get some bare bottom. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how that you put those pants on, I'm gonna change them anyway. You're six. Don't roll to me like that. So that's what Job just did. Job just put on some sassy pants here in in verse 30, and he's like asking these rhetorical, sarcastic questions to God. Hey, is there any injustice on my tongue? Because you and I both know there's not. Like, that's, that's what he's saying. He's stepping to God like that. This is a bit aggressive in tone here. Uh, and, And now let's look at chapter 7, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 20. He says, if I sin... 
what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? Now he's gone from sassy to angry, right? Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm afraid for Job right now. I don't know that you should be speaking quite like that. It says, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? And, and so now he's just straight up angry. Like, God, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. This seems unfair. But now let's fast forward to the last chapter of Job. Flip with me to chapter 42. Chapter 42. You're going to notice a massive transition in Job's tone by the end of the book. Here's what he says in Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. He says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Those, those aren't sassy pants anymore, are they? See, something happened throughout the course of this narrative that shifted Job's perspective from an undeveloped, sort of adolescent, angsty teenager kind of understanding of fairness to a more full-orbed, mature understanding of fairness. And you can see it indicated in the text. And so what we have in view this morning is that transition. How did that happen in Job's life? That he went from saying, this is unfair... You can't treat me like this. This is unwarranted. What are you doing to, oh my goodness, now that I've seen you, I realize that I don't deserve anything from you at all, and I shouldn't have been upset. How did that, how did that happen? And so we're going to explore that transition this morning. So um, it's my hope, personally, that we could go from an adolescent understanding of fairness to a more theologically, biblically informed understanding of fairness. And so um, go ahead and get your Bible ready or your phone or whatever you're using because we're going to look at a lot of texts this morning in order to pin down the answer to this question, is God fair in bringing suffering into our lives? Is he fair? So we'll begin in Genesis chapter 6. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 6, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to look through some Bible passages that talk about who I am and who you are. And after we see who the Bible says you and I are, we can then return to our question, and I think we'll find that it has been answered in the reading of these scriptures. All right, here's what Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's a, that's a bleak picture of humanity, isn't it? Like it, it just says, not that all of man's actions are bad, because that would be a lie, right? Like I've done some good stuff, right? But, but what it says is that the intentions of the thoughts of the human heart are only evil continually. Now that kind of language I think makes us uncomfortable as 21st century people because we like to talk about, well we don't actually use the word sin anymore. We use the word dysfunction. Have you guys noticed that? Like it's, it's uncouth to say things like sin anymore. So we'll say uh, maybe that's immaturity or you're dysfunctional in an area because we don't, we don't feel like you can say sin anymore. It's just not cool or popular or hip. Um, and, and, and so 
this text talks about sin as, as being something that defines a person. Did you catch that? Like it talks about sin as something that exists internally, not something that is somehow outside of a person. Now, that's the opposite of the way that we approach our understanding of sin. Because not only do we not call it sin, we assume that you can somehow educate sin out of a person. We really do. Like, we think that the answer to getting a better society, the way that you fix all of the problems across the globe, is more education, right? If we could just educate people more, if we could socialize people more, if we could globalize people more, how can we end racism? Well, maybe if we, if we are more globalized, we'll get to rub shoulders with each other, we'll become more educated, those barriers will start to fall down. Have you guys heard this kind of rhetoric? That's how we're going to solve the problem of humanity. We're going to get more educated, we're going to rub shoulders with more people, and gradually social evolution will take its course and we'll find ourselves in a utopian society. Just give us some time and some education education. Has that worked well? Has that worked well? Because we are an incredibly globalized society. We are an incredibly educated people. You want to know something? Google it, right? We are the most educated society that has ever existed on the planet, and yet read the headlines. Has it done anything to lower human sinfulness? Has it done anything to stifle the way that we treat one another? No, if anything, here's what it's done. We've got more technology and we've got more access. So it means that we sin against each other from farther away and in fancier ways. That's what it's done. That's what it's done. Did it work? Just give us some more education, a little bit more time, a little bit more social evolution, and then we'll be less sinful. And this is saying, no, that will never work because your problem is not external. It's internal. It's that the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. You can educate me all you want, and I will use that education to sin some more. This is saying you've got a deeper problem. This is what the Bible says about humanity. Now let's look at Psalm chapter 14. You guys can tell I came here to encourage you this morning. (laughs) Psalm chapter 14, we'll look at verses 2 and 3. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand or who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So this text paints this picture of of God on his throne looking down and surveying the landscape of humanity. And, And God asks this question, Is there anybody who seeks me truly? Is there anybody who desires me legitimately? And then he answers his own question. Nope. They've all turned aside and become corrupt. No one does good, not even one. And I think that the truth of this is pretty immediately apparent in in terms of asking the question, do do we have an inclination to seek after God? The the answer is, is clearly no. Because here's what happens, uh, especially in in more affluent environments like the one in which we live. If you give somebody health and wealth and prosperity, watch that person become the most arrogant person that you've ever met in your life. Because what do they do? Look at how hard I worked, right? 
Look at the stuff that was owed to me because of the hours that I put in at the office. Look at how my kids turned out because I wasn't an absentee father. Look at how good I was. So all of the good things that God has given us to try to point us to how great he is and how much we need him, we turn around and hijack and assume that those things are things that we had coming because of how excellent we are. He's saying, look at everything that I've done for you and what have you done? You've abandoned me and assumed that you just somehow had that coming. But what happens when you let something fall apart? What happens when you let your cells develop into cancer cells? What happens when your business goes under? What happens when something befalls your child? All of a sudden, we start looking out for God in a hurry, don't we? <laughs> right? And th- this happened, this was so interesting to me. 9-11, you know, there were all these news anchors, there were all these headlines saying, where was your God, Christians? You guys remember that? Where was God on that? And, and here's what blew my mind. How many thousands of planes took off safely and landed safely and nobody thanked him? You let one thing go wrong and all of a sudden it's, God, you really jacked this one up. You let everything go right? Does it lift our affections to him? No. It lifts our affections to us. Look how great we did. This text is obviously correct. We don't seek after God. We seek after ourselves. This is who we are. Let's look at Psalm chapter 51. Yeah, it gets worse. Psalm chapter 51, we'll look at verse 5. Here's what it says. This is David speaking, the psalmist. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this is David acknowledging that he didn't have to learn how to be sinful. You guys see that? He's saying, at conception, at conception, a wicked, self-centered, self-preserving little heart started to grow inside of me. And if you're a parent in this room, you know that's true. Because the moment, the moment that cognition is fully developed in your kids, you know what they start doing? They start hitting people. They start pushing people so that they can take their toys. And I'm just saying, I did not model that for my children, okay? Like, you have never seen me at my house sitting on the couch during family time, and the last cookie is sitting on the, on the plate, and Heather and I both reach for it at the same time. And she... Like, my daughter has never seen me slap her hand away, push her down, and say, mine, and just eat the cookie. Like, she's never, I did not model that for her. And yet, she learned how to do it very, very quickly. That's what the psalmist is saying. Like, you, didn't, you ain't got to teach no fools how to sin. That's on board. That's on board. He's saying, I, I've been wicked from birth. Like, this is not something that I learned. Society did not somehow corrupt me at some point. This is on board. Saying this is who we are. This is humanity. Let's flip to the right a little bit further to Psalm 130. I told you a lot of flipping today. Psalm 130. And we'll look at verse 3. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, this is the psalmist saying, if you judged us fairly, 
who could come into your presence and live? If you judged me on the basis of what I deserve, who could come into your presence with their thought life laid bare, with their motivations laid bare, with their activities laid bare? Who could stand before God and be judged fairly and stand? Answer is, is obvious. None of us. And, and if you happen to be sitting in your chair right now and you're thinking, that would be pretty good. That right there just made, just made you not be able to stand. <laughs> because the fact that any of us would be arrogant enough to assume that the God of the universe would look down at our lives and be like, well, I'm pretty impressed with that guy. That is the most arrogant thing that you could ever think. That somehow God in all of his perfection would look down at Wesley Johnson and be like, man, that guy's killing it. Oh my gosh. Like, we should, we should add a fourth member to the Trinity, see what's going on here. Like, that guy, whoa. No, that has never happened ever. And it will not ever happen. Because if all of these things are to be laid bare before God, he is, he is anything but impressed. Let's flip a little bit further to the right now. You guys are like, I get the point. We're terrible. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 17. Look at verse 9, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, a Jeremiah 17, 9 moment, but I, I have them all the time. Like, have, have you ever had a thought pop into your brain and you're immediately disgusted with yourself? Like, has that ever happened to you? Like, you're like, I don't even know where that came from. He's saying, we're, we're so sinful that we can't even comprehend the depths of the darkness that is lurking within us. I mean, it happens to me all the time. You say something and immediately you're like, Yeah, I've had those moments more often than I'd care to admit. But what is that? That's what's actually in me coming out. It's when, when, my social, um, when my social filter falls down. You guys know what I'm saying? Like we know how we're supposed to behave. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about all the thoughts you have that you know you can't say because there's people. Yeah. <laughs> the Bible's saying that stuff. Yeah. It, like, Jesus isn't like, well, it's okay because you didn't say it. He's like, the fact that you wanted to suggests you've got a very deep-rooted problem. In fact, sociologists have long said essentially this, that the seed of every sin exists in the heart of every person. Right? You may think you're a good middle-class bloke living in the suburbs, would never do anything wrong. And sociologists will tell you, you put somebody in the right circumstances and watch them commit some of the most heinous and grotesque crimes that you could ever imagine. All you need is the right primers to pull it out of you. And scripture is here saying, God knew that way before there was sociology as an academic discipline. Saying, look, look how terrible, look how far gone the human race is. And so with this informing our view of humanity, 
we, we have to now repose the question. Is God unfair when suffering enters my life? Is God unfair when suffering enters your life? If this is who we are, is anything bad happening to you or me unfair? The answer is most certainly no. The answer is no. In fact, it's, it's incredible to me that we will disobey and belittle God at every turn, elevating almost everything in our lives above him. Right? Netflix is more important than reading my Bible. Skinny jeans are more important than giving to his church. And they are important. Don't hear me wrong. They are important. Right? Okay? They are. But, but they have a tendency to make it just a little bit higher on the shelf than they belong. Right? And, and my comfort is certainly more important than obeying Jesus' commands. Right? That we will live our lives like that and then have the audacity to look up at God when something bad happens to us and say, it's not fair! What are we doing? We are a wicked, wayward, rebellious people. And then we have the audacity to shake our fist at God as if he's unfair. We breathe his air. We eat his food. We experience the pleasures that he has created. And in all of that, as we've already established, we then ignore him as the giver of those things and assume that it was our hard work and deservedness that produced those things in our lives. We are a wayward, rebellious people, and yet we've got the audacity to look at God and question whether or not he's fair. This is how the Bible would appropriate that question. I will say, though, there is something in the Bible that is grotesquely unfair. Like, gross, scandalous in how unfair it is. Flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You guys are getting your, your Bible drills in now. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 21. Here's what it says. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that is, committed no sin, had no sin internally, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. That's unfair. That's unfair. Did you guys pick up what that verse just put down? It says that God made Jesus, who knew, had no relationship with sin in any way, shape, or form, to be the embodiment of sin on the cross for you and I so that he might punish sin in Jesus' flesh rather than punishing sin in our flesh. That's what happens on the cross, that sin itself is being punished. It's being nailed to the cross, as it were. Let's flip now to 1 Peter, second chapter. Look, beginning in verse 22. This again is grotesquely unfair. It says, Jesus committed no sin, 
neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That is unfair. That you and I would rebel against the holy God of the universe, and instead of you and I receiving what we deserve for that, Jesus receives what we deserve for that. That's unfair. So if we want to repose the question, is God unfair? I think we can actually safely say, yes, he is. God is grotesquely unfair. But here's the gospel. It's that in all of God's unfairness, his unfairness works on our behalf and in our favor, not against us. This is the glory of the gospel. Of course God's unfair. Have you read the New Testament? He's left and right, not giving people what they are owed and instead giving them grace and mercy. Of course he's unfair. That's the gospel. Is God unfair? Yes. And let his unfairness, like lean into the unfairness of God. Let it well up into praise and worship for his mercy and his grace because his unfairness is not against you. It's for you. This is the message of the Bible. Of course he's unfair. Like, do you, see what, do you see what you're working with? And do you see what he's given you anyway? Of course he's unfair. Yes and amen. I'm incredibly glad that he's inequitable in his dealings with me because if he was equitable, I'd not be breathing right now. Of course he's unfair. Praise him for it. Now, there are a couple ways that this teaching works itself out on the ground, right? We've been hanging up, kind of hanging out up here in, in theology land, and we're, we're going to bring it down to the ground here. Th there's two responses that you and I ought to have in, in response to a teaching like this. Two things that should begin to work their way out of our lives if we truly grasp this, if we've truly internalized this, if we truly um, are, are having this applied to our hearts, then there are, are a couple things that should begin to happen in our lives. For some of us, it's that, that we need to now have a Job 42 verses 5 and 6 moment. Right? For, for some of us, it's that something terrible has befallen you or has befallen a loved one of yours, and you've been legitimately angry at God. That's unfair. How, how in the world could you do that? And for some of you, in light of this teaching this morning, there needs to come a Job 42, 5, and 6 moment where you look up at the God of the universe and say, you owe me nothing. You are not indebted to me. It is not your job to make sure that I am comfortable. You owe me nothing. Because if God is indebted to us, he's not God. But don't we sometimes think, it, think of it like that? Like, God, I, I've, been, I've been coming to church and enduring those sermons that are longer than they should be. Like, look at the sacrifice I'm making, right? I'm kicking in a little bit of funding, you know what I mean? Sometimes I hang out with kids in our world that, let's just be honest, I like some of them, but some of them, like, mom and dad gives them more spankings, you know what I mean? Like, like, 
God, look at all the stuff I've done for you. Don't you owe me not cancer? Don't you owe me a successful business? Like, come on, what are you doing? That's unfair. Some of us need to have a moment this morning where we realize he's God, not somebody with whom we entered into a contract. Not somebody who we can put in our debt by providing services. You, ha- you and I have never done anything for God. You've never scratched his back proverbially. You've never impressed him with your behavior. Your morality has never added value to his life. He owes you, he owes me nothing. The fact that we're breathing is grace. And so for some of us, we need to have that reality this morning. We need to have biblical theology and say, God, you're not indebted to me. You owe me nothing. So I'll take these breaths with gratefulness that you've allowed me another. And I'll live this life in humble submission to your authority, acknowledging that your fairness, or rather your unfairness, actually works for me, not against me. Some of us need to have that moment this morning. And then there are others of us where perhaps you've got pretty astute theology, right? Like some of us, we read our Bibles pretty well. Some of us, we get the gospel pretty well. We would all say, God, yeah, he's, he's unfair for me. Praise his name. But then it stops there. It stops at I have apprehended theological constructs. And one of the things that makes me the most angry is when I see people who have really good theology and then have terrible living. Like awful, awful living. Because here's what this means. If we know that God is unfair on our behalf, we're all happy to be recipients of that, aren't we? Everybody loves some grace, right? Like, let me get some, please. Amen and amen. But then, have you ever noticed that sometimes it's Christians who have this message of grace and mercy who are some of the most unforgiving people themselves? It's Christians who often demand fairness. Have you noticed that? We're like, oh, yeah, he did that. Kill him. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, aren't we? Like, we are the ones that stand on the front lines holding signs saying, hey, give them what they're owed. If we believe this, we cannot stop at being recipients of grace. We've got to extend it. Otherwise, we are, the hypocrisy is just incalculable. We cannot stop at receiving the unfairness of God on our behalf and in our favor and then be unwilling to extend that same grace, mercy, forgiveness, and unfairness to other people. If we get this and it works out in our relationships interpersonally, this will be an unstoppable movement in this city. Because who acts like that? Who forgives like that? Who gives out grace like that? Christians should. How much would our city change if that's what we took to the office with us? How much different would our kids be if that's what they got from us? How much different would our interactions with people be if that's what they got? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, not a recounting of everything that you did wrong and how much you owe me. How much different would our relationships be? How much different would our city be? How much different would our church be? And so church, I implore you, get this down deep in your heart that it might work its way out through your hands and watch how God changes this city as he changes us first.